Whenever I was in that world, that dope world from 2005 to 2008, I was a bad guy. And I don't pull any punches about that. I broke into people's homes. I started out with minor property crimes at first, shoplifting, breaking into cars, breaking into storage units. But then my crimes escalated to the very serious crime of burglary. And the thing about a burglary is that when I broke into my victims' homes, I didn't just steal property from these people. Man, I stole something from them they'll never, ever get back. That's their sense of security. When I go into prison, I encourage all those other inmates that are in there to go back and find law enforcement and tell them you want to be part of the solution. So you've got a friend in me. you got someone that's going in the prison system and encouraging people that are going to be coming out of prison because 95% of the people in prison get out. That's a big number. And it, part of my curriculum, too, is to go back and find law enforcement, find ways that you can help serve in the community and tell them thank you for taking you down that day. So hopefully there's going to be some men and women that come up and tell you thank you, like I did with SWAT, because I wanted them to know that I was so grateful for them for saving my life. And you're saving lives out there. Life's a pot of boiling water. Your pot of boiling water is unique. It's the biggest pot of boiling water there is outside of living inside of a prison. I can't imagine what it's like to be a law enforcement officer in America right now. You've got the streets are against you at times. You've got the public that's against you at times. Um, your job is so important because you keep the public safe. In, in public safety, it's paramount. If we lose that, we lose our society. This is like the last barrier to civilize, a civilized world. And, and here's the deal. If the brakes come off of society, if we lose law enforcement, the world looks like a prison. You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast, brought to you by the Assist the Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community, and now we want to give them a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but we get strong. We have differences. We don't always agree. And we all make mistakes. But together we can grow. We can heal. And we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. Hope is a good thing. Maybe the best of things. And no good thing ever dies. Andy Dufresne. The quote you just heard may sound familiar from the Stephen King movie, The Shawshank Redemption. Today's story has a lot of parallels with this movie and to the main characters. Now there has been some debate on this movie's true meaning and especially the correlation with the Bible and to salvation. In the movie, there are two different takes on the word salvation. The warden tells Andy to read the Bible, telling him that salvation lies within. Of course, by salvation, the warden means salvation of the soul through Christ, which Bible reading leads to. For Andy, salvation does lie within that Bible. But in a literal way, he keeps the hidden tool that leads to his freedom within that Bible. The warden's version is shallow and generic. Read some Bible verses and you're on the right path to salvation. 
regardless of how you actually behave as a human being. The difficult path, Andy's version, is to save yourself by persevering, hanging on to what you can of your integrity, and keeping those little flickers of hope burning in the face of degradation and despair. There are so many layers to this movie and its true meaning, but two words are synonymous with this book and plot, hope and redemption. Today's guest had to rely on hope, his faith, and redemption. The listener will hear how a former star quarterback of North Texas ended up addicted to meth, becoming a ringleader in over 50 burglaries to feed his addiction, and seeing his life change on July 30th, 2008, as our Dallas SWAT came crashing into his life. Little did anyone know that this day will start a chain reaction that will lead to a 65-year sentence that was handed down by longtime Dallas judge Mike Snipes. This story is about how some arrests Dallas police officers can make can not only get the victims of the crimes some semblance of closure or justice, but can also be an example of how an arrest, of how an investigation can change the life and the why of the person that has committed these crimes. Damon West, welcome to the ATL stage. Yo, Kent, man, thanks a lot, man. It's so excited to be I, I mean, let's get into it. You know I'm excited to be here, man. I want to start off, though. We usually have a, a different type of beginning of a story, but I have to say that our Dallas SWAT is looked at as one of the best in the country. And we have some of our most fiercest warriors on that unit. In July of 2008, you had a run-in with them. Let's hear about it. I can uh, I can attest to what you're saying, that they're, they're elite and some of the most fiercest warriors. And let me first start by saying that to be in this room today, it's surreal. I mean, it, it is, it's absolutely surreal. And that's what I told you in the parking lot when we came in. I think I joked around and said that the boys in the joint could see me now. And I don't think you've probably ever had someone sitting across from me that's been on the receiving end of something like this. But let me take everybody back to July 30th, 2008. That day, I was sitting around this little this little apartment in Dallas, Texas. It was off of Holland Avenue. And um, I was sitting on the couch, and I had my dope dealer sitting next to me, this guy named Tex. And Tex uh, was there to, to, to bring me some meth. I was, I was a meth addict, and I was... I was a meth addict, and I was the head of a bunch of other meth addicts breaking into houses in Dallas. It started in the uptown neighborhood of Dallas. They called them the Uptown Burglaries. And the burglaries spread out through entire Metroplex over the course of three years. And that day, I remember, like, I went to Quiznos right off of Lemon Avenue around noon, and 11.30 or noon. And when I went to Quiznos to get something to eat, I saw these cars that didn't look right on the street. Cars you never see, you know, and in the dope world, you're always, like, suspicious of everything going on. I thought it was weird. I go to my, go to my apartment. Tex comes in. He's bringing me some dope. And I'm telling Tex that day, man, you, you got to get out of here. You don't want to be here. The cops are closing in on me. My partner in crime, this guy named Dustin, had been picked up 10 days before. He was caught in a stolen car. So they got my partner in crime in custody, Joe, which means it's a matter of time before they have me in custody because that's the thing about crime. Everybody talks, right? And just as I'm telling Tex about this, the window on my right blows out and shatters. And then tumbling across that living room floor was a little canister. And it's going end over end. It's smoking, man. And I've seen this movie before. I know what that thing's about to do. And I'm trying to get up and get out of there as fast as I can. But you know how it is, man. The fuse is short in that thing. And it, boom, right in my face. Bright white light, loud noise, blows me back on the couch. 
And when I came to, when I can see and hear again, there's this there's a SWAT officer over me. He's got his boot on my chest, the, the barrel of a rifle's in my face, and he's screaming, don't move, don't move. And I'm like, man, don't worry, don't worry. <laughs> and um, and I remember somebody screamed out, and it had to be another SWAT officer, or, or it had to be some one of the other officers. Somebody screamed out, we got him. We got the uptown burglar. And like I said, that's what they called me, the uptown burglar. And they uh, they took me to Dallas County Jail that day. They processed me in, fingerprints, mugshot. Um, they arraigned me in, and my bond eventually was set at $1.4 million. I had about 17 charges laid on me. And here's the deal. Whenever I was in that world, that dope world, from 2005 to 2008, I was a bad guy. And I don't pull any punches about that. I broke into people's homes. I started out with minor property crimes at first, shoplifting, breaking into cars, breaking into storage units. But then my crimes escalated to the very serious crime of burglary. And the thing about a burglary is that when I broke into my victims' homes, I didn't just steal property from these people. Man, I stole something from them they'll never, ever get back. That's their sense of security. I got a family today. I've got a wife. I've got a little stepdaughter. My mom was with me now that my dad passed away. I cannot imagine someone coming into my home and doing to me what I did to so many people in Dallas all those years ago. But on July 30th, 2008, the Uptown Burgers came to an end because they had their man. They had the mastermind of the entire thing, zip tied on the floor of a dirty apartment. And um, yeah, that was the day that I, I tell people all the time. I go around over the world telling my story about, you know, the coffee bean and overcoming the adversity that I put myself in. But July 30th, 2008 wasn't just the day I was arrested. It was the day I was rescued. And I tell people all the time that that SWAT team saved my life. They were angels, man. Because in my story, my angels don't have wings. They have assault rifles, shields, helmets. They come through the window. They busted the door off the hinges to pull me out of that world that I was in. The Dallas SWAT saved my life that day. So, yeah, they're definitely heroes in my book, man. I'm going to back the clock up. And I want to get into the path that you you got on to led you to July of 2008 and then beyond. Sure. And then what you're doing now. So you grew up in Texas. I did. Uh, a little town called Port Arthur, Texas, down in southeast Texas, down where, where Louisiana and Texas, Texas touch on the Gulf Coast. I know exactly where it's at. It's hot down there. Burning hot. Hey, let me tell you something else about it being hot. Texas prison system, no AC. Yeah. And I was in prison in Beaumont, Texas, right down the road from Port Arthur. Woo, man. Yeah, yeah it was hot. Sticky. Yeah. yeah, sticky and hot, brother. Keep going, Joe. No, so what was home like for you? Yeah. Was it supportive? Very supportive. I came from a great family. And, and like, I mean, you talk about, you know, sometimes people throw out the word privilege. I, I, I had a life of privilege. I really did. There's no, there's no pulling punches about that. I came from a great two-parent home. My mother and my father were married for 55 years, you know, so I had – all the advantages over everybody else in life. I had a good education growing up. My dad was a sports writer for 50 years. My mom was a nurse. Um, I had an older brother, younger brother. Great family around me. Good student, but I was a great athlete. And, man, you know, Texas, we love high school football, man. Yeah, and I Friday was, Night Lights. Friday Night Lights. It's the real deal. I mean, we know what it is in Texas. And I was the man. I was a three-year starting quarterback for a 5A school, Port Arthur Jefferson. Scholarship to play football at the University of North Texas, Division One college football. And – um. You know, everything in my life at that point, Joe, was about being a college football player. That was my identity, was wrapped up in this whole thing of playing college football, which was good and fine until the day that college football was over, which it wasn't a day I planned for. It wasn't like I graduated and football was over. My career ended in 1996. We were playing against Texas A&M. It was a beautiful Saturday in College Station, Texas, man. I'm 20. I'm the starting quarterback for a D1 team, man, and my head's this big, and you know, I'm a real cocky, arrogant guy back then, 
But I'm driving my team down the field against the Aggies, and the third play of this game, I go down, and it's a career and an injury. So I never play college football again. And I get up to this fork and road life, and, and, and when football was gone, my identity was gone. And that's when I made a lot of wrong turns. And I think people do this a lot. You work in the wellness unit over here. I mean, like, when you lose your identity, when you wrap your identity up into something external, it can be taken away from you. And that's what I didn't understand at the time. Your identity has to come from within you, which is a lesson, ironically, I would learn when I was inside of a prison. But whenever you lose your identity, you have to fill it with something. It's like a void. Um, Victor Frankel, a guy that wrote this book called Man's Search for Meaning, I read it when I was in prison. Victor Frankel talked about the existential vacuum. Your existence is in a vacuum. So I filled it up with drugs, cocaine, ecstasy, pills. I mean, but I was a very functional addict in college. I graduated college, actually, in, in 1999, and I moved off to Washington, D.C. I worked in the United States Congress. I worked for a guy running for president of the United States. Uh, 2004, though, I moved back here to Dallas to be a stockbroker for one of the biggest Wall Street banks in the world, UBS, United Bank of Switzerland. It was, uh, the office was right there off of Sherry Lane, which is at uh, Northwest Highway and the Tollway. Mm-hmm. And that was a day that the li- that when I moved back in 2004... That's when my life and the lives of other innocent people in Dallas would forever be changed. Tell us about that. Whenever I was working as a broker, I was in the Dallas party scene. And I'm sure, you know, you being a law enforcement officer, you know there's a lot of partying that goes on in Dallas. It's still going on here. Yeah, yeah. the uptown area, Knox Henderson area. That's where I hung out. I lived in uptown Dallas. I lived at the, uh, I lived at the post-uptown village, as a matter of fact. And I was in the party scene a lot. And my main drug that I was doing was, uh, was cocaine mm-hmm. back then, back in the day. That was my drug of choice. But I was passed out of sleep one day, and this other stockbroker comes up. He sees me sleeping. He wakes me up. This is in 2004. He wakes me up, and he's visibly shaking. And, and, and he's like, Damon, he said, listen, man. He said, you can't sleep on a job like this. He said, the markets are open. You're messing with people's money. He said, man, they'll fire you if they catch you sleeping here. But he said, come on down to the parking garage. I've got something that will pick you up. So I followed this guy down the parking garage that day, right there at Northwest Highway in the tollway. We go down there, we get in this little sports car, and he hands me a glass pipe with these crystal rocks in it. I'd never seen a glass pipe before, Joe. So I'm like, man, what is that? And he's like, hey, just relax. He said, it's crystal meth. He said, you're going to love this stuff. Truer words have never been spoken. It's the most destructive, most evil, most addictive drug ever created by man. It's made in a lab, and you know, it's made to get you hooked. And I was, I was hooked. I smoked it one time, and it's instantly hooked just like that. And I could not give everything away fast enough for that drug because this, let me tell you, this is addiction 101 here. Addicts give things away. Nobody can take something from an addict. We give it away. I gave up my job, my home, my car, my savings account, my family, my tethering to God. Addicts give up their goals to meet their behaviors. That's what addicts do, you know? And, and, and I, and I want to say this too about addicts is what I've learned about addiction is that addicts for the most part, they're not bad people they're sick people that do bad things man and that's what i was when i was in my addiction i was a sick person that did bad things to people i broke into people's homes but addicts for the most part they're not bad people they're sick people that do bad things and i don't know that i've ever met anybody and i and i went to prison i lived in the worst part of a prison of a supermax prison i didn't meet anybody in there that said hey damon when i when i grow up one day i want to be a I want to be a drug addict. I want to be an alcoholic. I want to be a criminal. I want to be a thief. I want to be a liar. I want to be cheap. I, I wanted to be Jerry Maguire. I wanted to play pro football. You know, mm-hmm. I wanted to be a sports agent. But I grew up to be all those things. But I don't think anybody ever sets out for that. I think people have, they want to be a, they want to be a cop. They want to be a firefighter. They want to be a nurse. They want to be a doctor. They want to be a lawyer. But addicts give up their goals to meet their behaviors. We'll give all that stuff away. And I was just like every addict in the history of addiction, Joe. I gave all those things away. 
it took about 18 months for me to burn through everything. And I was evicted from the post uptown village. And then I was living on the streets of Dallas. I was uh, out in East Dallas on the street called Grigsby street. Yeah. Yeah. A little dope house on Grigsby street is where I was living, man. So when you were, you started in 2004 and you're out, you're homeless in Dallas. Were there, was it just meth at that point? Were you just totally addicted to meth or were you doing some other? Yeah. Good question. Yeah. You're a cop, you know? So yeah, man, it was just meth. I'm going to tell you how powerful meth is. You could have put me in a room after I tried meth for the first time. You could put me in a room with a mountain of cocaine and I wouldn't touch it. There's no appeal. And it's weird because cocaine had a big grip on me for about four years, man. I mean, even when I'm in D.C. and Austin and all these other places I'm living, I'm still doing blow. I'm I'm a drug addict, but I'm functional at this point because I could function a little bit on cocaine. But after I smoked meth, ice, for the first time, you could put me in a room with a mountain of that stuff. I wouldn't touch it. All I wanted was that. And that was it. That was that was what I worshipped. That was what I was after. And and Joe, honestly, man, once I got to a place where I figured out how to score, how to get it with with you know stealing stuff. After I blew through all my savings and everything, uh, man, I didn't go many days without it for the course of a three year span. I mean, I was because I didn't want to come down. I, it was painful to come down. Well, Kent and I've you know interacted with a lot of people that have been on meth, <clears throat> dealers and and users. It rots you. Mm-hmm. It rot, it rots you from within. I mean, even more so like cocaine. We do a lot of people that, that do cocaine, but meth can actually literally rot you physically. Oh, man. It was so bad. So here, we'll get into some of that then. Let's go for sure. So when I'm in the meth world, all these people, and I'm looking around, everybody's teeth is falling out of their head. Their skin looks like Sword, crap because yeah. they're, they're, they're picking their faces in the mirror. They're up for days. And I'm up for days, man. And, I, I, and I'm trying to figure out why everybody looks like they're falling apart. And so, I mean, I get on, I get on the internet and this is like before Google, it's a Yahoo. Yeah. I'm doing Yahoo search. So like what makes teeth fall out of your, you know, fall out of your head. And, and so what I, what I learned was that whenever you're up for days like that, you're dehydrated, there's no drinking water or anything like that. You're dehydrated. You've got cotton mouth and it's gross. You're around. I look back at the meth world now and I can't believe I lived in that gross world, man, because you don't, you're not showering. It's gross. And, but when you're up for that long, you, you get dehydrated. And when you're dehydrated, your body quits producing saliva. And when you don't have saliva, so one of the saliva's jobs is to just wash this bacteria off your teeth all day long. So you don't have saliva, bacteria gets in there and rots. Another reason is that people don't get nutrients and vegetables and stuff like that. They're, they're, they, they don't eat. Then another reason is they're staying up for too long. So I watched this and I'm like, okay, I can counteract that because I'm, I'm a little bit vain. So, I mean, I, I don't want to lose my teeth. I don't want to have this crazy looking skin. So, um... I just carried around a gallon jug of water. Anybody from the dope world back then that was in the burglary, they're like, oh, that was the guy with the gallon jug of water everywhere he went. I'm sure there's surveillance footage somewhere of me walking around with a gallon jug of water and these, uh, these just uptown condos. Just to combat condos, those symptoms. Just yeah. so I would, I would make myself drink water, and I would force myself to eat. And, and I had a rule, Joe. If I was up for two days, I'd knock myself down with some Xanax or weed or something like that just so I could get some sleep. Because you're, you'll start dreaming while you're awake, and you're, you'll hallucinate. You'll see things, and it's very uncomfortable. And, um. But yeah, that was the thing, man. People's the other thing that I learned too is that people that bang it, people that shoot it up, mm, it yeah. destroys them, yeah, devours them. And I never you see that with heroin. Yeah, yeah, and I never could do needles. I I can't even get my blood drawn without. I can't look at it when they're drawing my blood at the hospital or something like that, which is good. I mean, that, I look back now, that probably saved my life because if I ever would have stuck a needle in my arm, the way that they talk about the high on a needle, man, I wouldn't be here today. But I'd never put a needle in my arm. I smoked it every time. Um, but look, man, I was. I was living on the streets for a little while on Grigsby, man. I lived in this little dope house, and there was this uh, this dope dealer, this guy named Will Pearson. He's dead now. 
It's a good place for him, too. He's a bad guy. Really bad guy. This is a dangerous dude. But um, Will was a, a big dope dealer, and um, he loved having me there to show off to his other other people. He was an a Aryan Brotherhood type guy. Okay. You recognize the name? I do. Okay. Yeah. So, Will, he was a bad dude. And um, Will, he would bring me in almost like a court gesture. Right, right. So he's bringing me in in front of all these other guys. He'd have some guys, some some of the, you know, Hispanic guys from the from East Dallas and the dope world and stuff like that. And he'd bring me in and say, you know, Damon, tell us the stories about when you used to walk the halls of Congress or when you used to hold Jimmy Johnson's headphone cord. And mm-hmm. yeah. And then, be, you know, then he'd be like, well, beg me for some of this dope. And I mean, I'm like, I'm a dope fiend. I'm begging for the dope. And it was humiliating AF, you know, but yeah. But I did that because that's what dope fiends will do. You give up everything for the, for the high. But uh, Will was a bad dude. I mean, he's he. I mean, he put a gun in my head one time and started pulling the trigger. There was nothing in it, man. There's no. There's nothing in the chamber. But I mean, it was just he was a. It's a power trip. Yeah, it's just it's just all control and power. Power trip, and that's what he always did. He always uh, he always created a lot of distraction. I saw this behavior a lot in prison because Will had spent a lot of time in prison, and, and the guys in prison they'll create a lot of distraction to keep you from paying attention to what's really going on. And that's what Will was big about doing. But, um, but yeah, so I put myself out in the dope world. Finally ended up um, getting this apartment that was off of uh, Holland Avenue. 4320 Holland was when SWAT, that's where SWAT got me. Mm-hmm. And um, whenever I was living there, I had a roommate, this, this, this woman named Jenny. She was my roommate in the meth world, too. Everybody in the meth world, it's all insidious. But what I also learned in the meth world is that theft and meth go together like rats and trash. It's an axiom. You can take that to the bank every single time. And these dens, these meth houses I would go to where the dealers were, every room was set up like a, it, was, it was like a crime facility. Like some rooms would be where, where they're, they're, they're applying for credit cards and stuff like that. They're stealing people's ID in one room. You know, another room, they're trying to make driver's license. They're trying to get this certain kind of plastic that makes a driver's license, you know. And it's, I mean, it's just all this stuff going on. In another room, they're doing dope. And what, man, what would, what I saw a couple of times, I didn't see it much, but anytime I saw a pregnant woman doing meth, it freaked me out. And that's the only thing. I look back on it now. That's the only thing that would make me leave a dope house is to see a pregnant, because you know she's got a child in there, and that child is getting high at the same time she is. And it's yeah. just, that's the hardest thing to see. But, man, look, I was a bad guy. And, and I'm going to tell you this, too. I wrote a book called The Change Agent. And in The Change Agent, um, I literally put in there every bad thing I could think about about myself I, because I wanted people to see how bad it really got. And the worst thing that I ever did, um, Hurricane Rita destroyed my parents' house in 2005 down in Southeast Texas. Mm-hmm. My dad has to drive my grandmother, his mother up here. She's like 88 years old. because She's going to have to live with me. My parents' house got destroyed. My, my grandmother lived with them. And so my parents think that I, because I, I lie to them. That's nothing addicts do. We lie a lot. So they think that I work at, uh, like, I think I said I was working at a limousine company or something back then. And so when they're like, hey, we're going to send grandma up there to live with you. Is that okay? And I'm like, yeah, that's fine. But but my apartment, Joe, my apartment, I've got cartel guys over there cutting up ice. And they own me at this point because I can't even pay my, my tab on the dope. My apartment, I'm going to be evicted any time now. Um but these guys are over there. They're, they're armed. They've got guns. There's there's dope everywhere. But I tell them, hey, my, my grandma's coming. Can't bring grandma there. But they did. My dad had to bring my grandma there. But it was interesting, too, though, because those those guys, those, those Hispanic guys, they understood uh, because they have a lot of multi-generational homes. The family. Yeah. Their family. Mm-hmm. So they understood the family thing. They're like, great. So we cleaned the apartment up. My dad, everybody's gone. My dad brings my grandma. He's exhausted. He catches a nap. He goes home to Port Arthur. And I've got my grandmother there for about six weeks, y'all. And 
my grandmother lived in my room in this apartment, this nice area of Dallas called Uptown Dallas. And my grandmother lives in my room, and she is literally a prisoner in that room because I never bring her out. And she's got dementia. Mm. She's, um, I bring her three meals a day, but it's like literally, it's like a prison cell, man. I'm bringing her three meals inside of her room. She eats in there. She's filthy. I don't give her a bath. I don't know how to take care of my grandma. My mom finally comes up there almost a month into it, and and I, I haven't bathed my grandma. It stinks. The whole place smells bad. There's, and I let my grandmother down like that, man. I, 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 when somebody will turn their back on their own family like that and just let my grandmother waste away in that room. And when I was writing the book, I, I told my dad, I said, I want to include this story in the book. I was living with my parents at the time. I was on parole. And um, I said, I want to include the story about grandma in the book. And my dad's like, just tell me why you need to include that story. And I said, man, I, I want this book to show people what addiction's like, how bad addiction is. I want them to see how bad I got, that I would do that to my own flesh and blood. Because if I think if I can show that, then I think other people can relate to it. Not just the users, but the family members of the users. Joe, that book, The Change Agent, came out in 2019. I'm telling you, hundreds of people have written to me to say, man, that story illustrated right there why my brother, my sister, my son, my nephew, my niece, whatever, did what they did to our family when they were strung out on drugs. And drug, man, addiction is a terrible thing. But addiction affects everybody in this country, Joe. It, it's, it, 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 whether you're the addict, the family member of an addict, the victim of an addict, the, 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 the taxpayer paying into an overburdened criminal justice. It's a justice. ripple effect. Of, it's not just the individual. Everybody. It ripples out. To, it's like throwing a stone in, the, in, a, in a pond. Yeah. And you see the ripples go. All the way to the shore. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and I'm, y'all see it here where you are too, right? I mean, it's not, you're not immune to it. No, and we even like alcohol addictions, addiction, whether it's alcohol or, uh, or drugs or a combination of both. We see it all the time. And, you know, at, at core, everybody's human. It doesn't matter what you do for a living. Right. Everybody, nobody's immune to an addiction. That's or it. addictive personality. Some people, it could be porn. Some people are addicted to working out. Yeah. You know, addictive personalities are addictive personalities. Sure. And, and, and addicts, again, addicts give up their goals to meet their behaviors. That's addiction. Normal people, focused people, driven people, they'll give up bad behaviors to meet goals, but addicts can't do that. I want to get into the Uptown Burglaries because we have people that live across the country, the, the list, uh, listeners that live across the country, and uh, I know about the Uptown Burglaries because I was working out at Southeast at the time, and I remember hearing about them, and I knew where they were going on, and mm-hmm. uh, and and we you know it, it was kind of like we need to catch these guys, put yeah. out, you know, try to beat the bushes and try to get some leads on this. So can you kind of tell the listener a little bit about that uh, those offenses and that way they kind of can understand? Well, I will say first the Uptown area of Dallas is is it's it's in the central division and it is more of the upscale portion of dallas it's not quite helen park but it is uh for dallas it is more the up, upscale uh you got a, nice apartments and nice houses and you have some of the best eateries and uh and clubs out there in, in that in that part of town correct correct and it was really uptown as a as a design for the city was a big gentrification project they moved a lot of a lot of like unsightly homes out of that area and built these you know nice condos like you said nice eateries. That's how they attracted other businesses to the Dallas area. So the Uptown Burglaries. Whenever I was first getting into meth and I was working at UBS, I got fired from UBS. Still living uptown. 
this is the area where I first start becoming a criminal because it's the area closest to me. And, and, and in crime, a lot of times criminals hit the areas that they live around. I mean, cause it's familiar to them. You hit what you know, you hit okay. what you know. And so, and I've got access to uptown white middle-class guy, you know, well-dressed, well-spoken. I can move around with impunity in the uptown area. And uh, like I said, first it was started out with these storage units inside these condo buildings. They got these storage closets in there and stuff like that. I think my first, and I can tell you the first, the first storage unit crime I did was uh, off of Turtle Creek. It was, um, I can't remember the name of the condo unit, but I was there with this girl that lived there at the time. And um, anyway, I was breaking into all the storage units out in the hallways. You know, I wouldn't go into someone's house at that time. But I ran, at one of the dope houses, I ran into this guy named Dustin. And I won't give any last names because it's not important. If you, okay. if you look up the case, you could probably see who it was. But Dustin and I started comparing stories about burglaries and stuff like that. And, I mean, he was doing he was doing some burglaries. I was doing some, you know, break-ins and stuff like that, but not to the houses yet. And it, so Dustin and I team up, and we start breaking into condos and apartments and stuff like that. We start off in Uptown, but it moves all the way up through up to Collin County. And um, Dustin came up with a method for breaking into these, these doors, and it became what was called a signature crime. And the way this signature crime worked is, like, you take a deadbolt, all right? And right above the deadbolt, if you go in with like one of these thin screwdrivers like you work in a computer with, you can pry back behind the bolt, where it, behind the big deadbolt where it's put into the door, the wooden door. You get behind there, you slide your screwdriver down, and there's a little catch right there that pulls that throw of that lock. It's just a little lever. You go in there, you find it, you touch it, move it to the side, the lock opens up. It's going to leave a little bitty hole in the door. And so whenever I went to trial, the the... You know, the evidence that was put on, they're talking about drilled a hole in the locks, drilled a hole above the locks. I mean, I couldn't take the stand to tell them, no, no, no that's not how we did it. We did it like this. But but that was how we gained access and entry without having – because, I mean, I could pick some locks. Schlage is a really good lock, by the way. Okay. Schlage's are hard to pick. Hard to defeat. Uh, hard okay. to defeat. Shout um, out Schlage. Yeah, shout yeah. out Schlage. Shout out Schlage. <laughs> no, they didn't pay me for this. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. But, um, but we – here's another thing. We went to Great Lanes to make sure no one was home. So here's just crime 101 that I'm sure everybody knows in this room. Like you, you look in these condo buildings, and if you get above the first floor where you know there's really no back door access to the place, and you find these doors that have a bunch of restaurant flyers and stuff stuck in the door, mm, packages yeah. in front of the door, newspapers stacked up, no one's home at that place. And so that's the kind of things we would look for. To hit some of these places. Another thing we had was a, rever- a reverse peephole viewer. You get them in a head shop, get anywhere you want, stick it up to a peephole, changes the glass back around, you're looking inside the place. and It's like a prism. It's, yeah. yeah. It just reverses the glass. So we had that. Um, another thing that w- that that I did in, in some of the places uh, that had mailroom kiosk, some of the places have mailroom kiosk in, the, you know, in Uptown, Metroplex, in these condos, they'll have a mailroom. And in the mailroom is a... Uh, the only the mailman can access the, the mailroom, right? And on the outside of the mailroom is these three walls that have little boxes there. You have a key to the box. But the mailman goes inside, and all the boxes are open. You can put mail in there. That's how the mailman does his job. So I would break into the mailrooms after the mailman was gone, and I'd go looking in there for the, the slots that had mail stacked up, mm, you know? And yeah. you know, it, it, there's even I've, I've even seen notes in some of those that say, hey, we'll be out of town from this date to this date. Hold our mail. So you know that that person at that address, at that, that number, is not there. And that's how some of our victims were selected. That was pretty sophisticated for 
because Kent and I, you know, the listeners, we've worked a lot of burglaries. And I remember these offenses going on, but it's I try to remember the, the actual MO and all that. But mm-hmm. it, this is, you know, I've, I'm halfway through your, your audio, the book. I'm listening yeah. to the audio book. Uh, of, uh, the change agent? Yes, the change agent. And it's interesting th- that the de- level of detail and research and canvassing that you guys did – Oh yeah, that, which it is. It is kind of rare. And uh, did y'all have to take those measures because of the location that you were in? Because it was, because it was the uptown area, and yeah. it it was crimes like that aren't as frequent. Like if you go down to, you know, South Dallas or Pleasant Grove, there's burglaries aplenty, and they're not that sophisticated. Those those kicking doors, those smash kick windows, doors. those yeah. kick doors. I, I was locked up with a guy of guys that did that in South Dallas and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, so I think. The first thing to hit on is the preservation of life instinct. Um, you know, I'm a criminal at that point, but I think we can see that I'm not an idiot. And so even though I'm whacked out on dope, you know, once I could get myself back to a place where I wasn't up for four days and my mind could work right, um, I put myself into whatever I do in life, Joe, full speed, whether it's good or it's bad, whether it was like getting this college scholarship or becoming a criminal, I became the best at whatever I was doing. And, um, I, I didn't want to get caught. One of the reasons I didn't want to get caught is I didn't want to come down from the high. I wanted to keep getting high. So one of the, my mom and dad knew something was wrong with me, and they would, but they didn't know what it was. And my mom was like, damn, come back to Port Arthur and live with us. There was no way I was going to Port Arthur. I don't have a dope man down there. I mean, like, that's, no, I don't have access to, to meth. But one of the things that I, I realized, too, in the Uptown Burger recently, you asked me, you, you made the comment, too, which is a very astute comment that, that's not a common thing that goes on in Uptown. But also, I, was, I didn't feel like I was going to be looked at as a suspect in Uptown because I looked like I belonged in Uptown. And I didn't have the, the physical appearance of the other meth addicts. You can look mm-hmm. at me now and see that I have all my teeth and that, you know, that my skin's fine. But, and that was one of the things I think Dustin and some of the other people. Now, when the Uptown burglaries come to a full speed, there's about a dozen meth addicts involved in this thing. They're young and old. They're male and female. They're black and white. They're everything in between, right? Because drugs and addiction don't discriminate. Right. And so we're going in. We're finding these places that are vacant. And we're bringing people in. And, uh, you know, all these people are coming in. And we're cleaning the places out. And, I mean, there's women there going through the women's clothes. There's, there's I mean, there's appliances came out. I mean, furniture came I mean, we wiped some people's places out, Joe. I mean, and, and like, again, I look back at it, like, with where I am in my life, I can't imagine someone doing that to my house. But in the end, there were about a dozen of us. And, um, you know, this went on for a long time. Joe, I think that Dustin getting caught in a stolen – it all came down to a stolen car. And I can tell you the story about that in a second here and, and it, because – I can tell you the date that it, that it really shifted was February 27th, 2008. And uh, you, might, you might not have got to this part in the change agent yet. So on February 27th, 2008, and remember July 30th, 2008 is when SWAT gets me. So this is like six months before, man. We're, we're, the clock is ticking after February 27th. I get a call from Dustin. He lives in Ewes. And he's like, dude. He said, man, uh, the, the cops are here, and, and they're, they're taking my car. Now, one of the things we would do with the car, some of the cars from the Uptown Burglaries is we would take car, like you find the key fob. Someone's out of town. They leave their, key, their car behind. 
take the key fob out to the parking garage, just hit that button until it boop, boop, you hear it. Now you're gonna, we're going to take the vehicle. And so um, Dustin had a Mazda RX-8 from one of the Uptown burglaries. And he was supposed to get it cleaned up and, and VIN numbers changed and all that. I, I was driving around a, a 530 BMW for one of the burglaries and a, and, and a BMW X5, which is what I was, was eventually caught with down the road from my house when they, when they busted me. So Dustin calls me up on February 27th. He said, dude, the cops are here. They're getting my car. I'm like, wait, what are you talking about? He said, man, there's a tow truck out there in the parking lot. And Dustin lives in a pretty crappy apartment complex in Euless, right? He said, there's a, a tow truck out there, and there's a guy in a sports coat, jeans, cowboy boots, and a cowboy hat, and they're taking the car. And I'm like, man, what kind of cop is that? He's like, I don't know, man. I said, well, get the name of the impound lot off the side of the, the tow truck. And so... And I said, call him and find out what's going on. So he calls me back an hour later. He is freaked out now. He's like, Damon. He said, man, the Texas Rangers got my car. One of the Texas Rangers got on the phone when I called the impound line. I said, that's my car now. That's the Texas Rangers car, and I'm coming to get you next. I'm like, stay there, dude. Do not move. I'm coming right now. And I sit down on that apartment in that apartment hall, and I get high as a kite. I told Jenny, I'm going into this place, and I've got like, I don't know, $1,000, $1,500 that's at the house. I'm like, if I'm not back, this is one of those conversations. If I'm not back when the sun comes up, come get me out of this jail. It's in Haltom City because that's where the impound lot was in Haltom City. So I go to da- uh, to Dustin's place in Euless. I get the key fob from him, and, and I'm like, how did they catch, how did they get this car? What happened? You know, you're supposed to have it cleaned up. How stupid criminals are. <laughs> he goes to get the car cleaned up, but he decides when he does that, he wants to get glass pack mufflers to change the identity of the car. You're going to stick glass pack mufflers on a stolen car. You're going to bring more attention to this thing. Badass. Yeah. And when he does it, they have a form that you fill out where you can get like 10% off. You just got to put your information in there. Got to get the discount. Yeah. <laughs> so he yeah. got the discount, yeah. but he also left a trail of who he was, and they just came over there. Because, I mean, they're going to run the VIN at a, at, a, at a car shop. They're going to run the VIN. Like, oh, that's a stolen car. That's what he told me happened. I'm like, man, you're an idiot, and we're going down. I said, and, and I, I said, what's in the car? And he said, the burglary bag was in there. His burglary yeah. bag had all yeah. his tools, everything in it. I was like, oh man, my hand, my fingerprints are on the on the passenger side. I said, give me the key. He's like, what are you gonna do? I said, I'm going to that imp, the police impound lot, and I'm going to get that bag out. I got to get that bag. I said, if the, if if the, the, the it was like five in the afternoon when the, the Rangers got it, I knew that they weren't gonna dig through the car. It's an it's an impound lot. It's safe. So um. I get the key file from him. I drive to Haltom City. I find the impound lot. It's it's right there in, in Haltom City. There's a there's a little highway right there, and across the highway there's a a, a shopping center and then a, some houses behind it. So I, because I'm driving around the impound lot, I can't find it. I can't find the car just by driving around. So I drive into the neighborhood across the street from the impound lot, and I find a, a vacant house, and I break into the back of the vacant house, and I go in there and unlatch the garage, and I'm like, okay, this is a place I can run to when I get that bag. Because I'm going to go and break into an, an impound lot, man. There's going to be people chasing me. This is going to be a scene. So I leave my car there. I walk across the street to the impound lot. I've got his key fob with me. And I go across the highway. And and I'm walking around trying to look in the fence of this impound lot in Haltom City. And I can't see the car. So let's say it's a baseball diamond. And its home plate is the gate where the tow truck comes through and brings the car. Go down to the first baseline. There's a guard shack. There's a dog. And around the entire infield is all cars. And there's cars along the walls of the fence, too. This is a baseball time. But there's an infield path that you can go first, you know, home to first, first to second, second to third, third to home, where the trucks come and drop cars off. And I see, like, in center field, there's a tree 
And I'm like, okay, I'm going to go climb up that tree and see if I can spot this car because I just got to get in there and get the bike and go, right? So I climb up in this tree. I'm way up there too, man. I'm up there. It's, it's 20, 25 feet in the air. I'm up there looking around. And I look down below me, Joe, and the car's right there. It's backed into center field, man, backed up against the wall. And I'm like, it's backed in. So I'm like, man. So I hit the key fob. It unlocks. I drop in. I get in the car. The dog comes. The dog, the dog heard that. He's coming, but the dog can't find me. He can't see me. So the dog eventually loses interest. And I look back in the back seat. There's the bag. Cops hadn't got it yet. And the thought occurred to me, like, I could just take the whole car because I'm sitting in the car right now. So that's what I did, Joe. I stole the whole car from the police impound, from the impound lot in, in Haltom City. So here's what I did. So I, I start the car up. I mean, immediately when I started, boom, the glass packs yeah. blow, right? I'm like, oh, my God. It's, like, so quiet out there. But I pull it around from second to third down the baseline and then third to home. I stop about halfway from third to home, and I wait. And I'm waiting for the next tow truck to come that's going to bring the next car in. they got two tow trucks rotating that night. And, um, and I wait, and then here it comes. Man. I hear the gate turning up. The front of the tow truck comes. And as soon as I see the front of the car that that tow truck's pulling, press the gas now i mean one of two things is going to happen man either he is going to this tow truck driver is going to see me coming natural reflex he's hitting the gas and he's going down the first baseline to get out of the way of this car that's going to t-bone him or he sits still and lets this little sports because this little mazda rx8 t-bone a five and, and a four ton you know with the pipes yeah. with pipes mm-hmm. with pipes <laughs> so i can i think i still see, i can still see his face man he sees me coming he looks at me his eyes are wide he punches it he goes on first baseline. I get down, and I, I turn hard right, and I'm doing donuts, man. And I, when I look up, I'm on the outside of the impound lot. I took the entire car, drove it to that place. I backed it into that garage that I un- unlatched earlier. I get in there, and I clean this car up from top to bottom, man. I mean, there is nothing. I take the tire tool out. Anything he could have touched, right? When I leave there about 630 in the morning, the sun's coming up. And, um, and, I, and I told Dustin, he said, what happened? I said, I got the car out. I left it at this place, but it's there now. It's, it's, out, it's, out of, it's, it's out of our hands, out of our hair, but there's nothing to tie you to it, except the fact they got it from his apartment, right? They know yeah. it. They, the, the DFW Auto Theft Task Force, I would find out, is the ones. That's why the Rangers were involved in this whole thing and the, and the, and the, the whole time. And I would find out later in life when I wrote the book, The Change Agent, I worked at a law firm in Beaumont. And this is the first job I had out of prison was working in a law firm. I did my own legal work in prison, got the attention of some lawyers. And the lawyers told me, man, if you ever get out of prison, come see us. We got a job for you, man. You, you did great legal work. So this is 2019. I'm working in a law firm. Been out of prison for four years. The change agent's about to come out. And the lawyer I work for, we've really researched the whole dynamic. Like, is there anything in the book that could get me in trouble? Is there a statute of limitation on anything I talk about? And there, was, there wasn't. There was nothing. My crimes were property crimes, man. I wouldn't. I wasn't a violent criminal. That's the reason why I could even make parole in the first place, right? And um, he, the, the lawyer I work for, he's like, man, are you going to like alert the impound lot? Let them know that this book's coming out and that story's going to be in there? So I did. Called the impound lot up, and I was like, hey, man, I, I wanted him to take me serious first. So I said, hey, listen, I, want, I need you to call back to the switchboard at the Provost Humphrey Law Firm. Here's the number. Ask for Damon West. So the guy does it. He's like, what's this about? I was like, listen. And look, I work a program recovery, Joe. And part of being in a program recovery is you got to be honest. You can't. There's no line. There's not. That's your life is about doing the right thing. So I said, listen, there was a guy that was in prison. He's out now. And he's telling a story about a time that he stole a car out of your impound lot. He goes, Mazda RX-8. Most amazing, daring thing we've ever seen. And then he goes on to say that we got rid of the guy that was responsible for it that worked here. I'm like, whoa, wait a second, man. Whoa. I said, this wasn't an inside job. He said, well, the guy that we got rid of was causing us all kinds of problems. And we, we, 
we figured that was tied to him too. I was like, no, no, no. I, I said, I hope you had a good reason for firing the guy because here's how it went down. And I told him how I did it. He said, oh, how did the guy – I didn't say it was me, but I said, here's how the guy did it. And he said, how did he gain access? I said, well, back then, I don't know if you have it now, there was a tree where it would be center field. He goes, yeah, there's a tree there still. So we climbed up the tree and he dropped in. He goes, man, that, that limb is like 25 – he has to be like Spider-Man. I said, that's how he got in. He said, man, that's wild. And he was looking at the, the report because he pulled it out. I said, how did y'all find out about it? How did y'all discover that the car was stolen? He said, man, uh, the crew that was going to work on that house, because it was an empty house, a vacant house, because it was being worked on, the maintenance crew that went to work on that house found it at 7.30 in the morning. I just missed them, man. Or they just missed me by one hour, man. I left that place at 6.30 in the morning when I pulled out that garage. This close to run into a man. You imagine, I mean, this is the this is the scary part, too, about the crime stuff, is... Whenever I committed these crimes, no one was ever home, Joe. And, I, and I'm, I'm so grateful that no one was ever home because I don't know what happens when a homeowner runs into someone like me that's breaking into their house, right? I mean, anything can happen then, you know? Well, yeah, because I know how I would react, Yeah, you know, and I'm pretty sure I know how Kent would react. And when you, you, you mentioned it before, whenever you enter in someone's home, it is a complete violation, violation. of that of that person's totally. in their in their world, and you know you yourself you have a family now, and can you imagine oh, that feeling? No, just how yeah. No, how do you explain it to your kids? How did those people explain it to their kids that I did it to? You know, and Joe, I can't ever even apologize to my victims. The state of Texas has a law. It's a felony for someone who commits a crime against someone to apologize to the victim of the crime. And I'm sure that I'm sure it's there more for violent criminals because the victim of a violent crime doesn't necessarily want someone to come up and apologize to yeah. them. But that's one of the things my parole officer talks about with me when I meet with her every month. No apologies. No apologies. Not on social media. Never where you go. I will never apologize to my victim. I'm not going back to prison to make an apology. I work a program recovery called AA. And... In this program recovery, I've got to make my amends some way. So when you get to an apology that you can't make, you, you do what's called a living amends. And a living amends is when you go out and just do good deeds and you expect nothing in return. Joe, by my estimate, I can just go out and do living amends for the rest of my life, and I'll probably be back to zero at some point, you know. But I can't fix what I did to those people. I can't change it. There's nothing I can do about it. And um, that's a real, I had a real negative impact on a lot of people. And, and let's be honest, man. I mean, the burglaries they caught me for, that's not the, the total number of burglaries that went on. You don't catch somebody for the, you know. I, it's what you can prove. It's what you can prove, yeah. man. And it's, there's a lot more, you know, that goes on. Like guys in prison that I ran into, they weren't there because they caught them the first time they did something. They, they caught them the hundredth time or the fiftieth time that they did something. And so, I know that I caused a lot of people a lot of pain, hurt, suffering, loss. Victims of my crimes. My parents. My parents were my victims, too. Everybody that believed in me. And, um, and I deserve to go to prison. I, I, I want to definitely get that out there. I say that to people all the time. The trial that I went to, they got me for organized crime in, in Dallas. And organized crime, you know, the goal of an organized crime indictment, a RICO indictment, you're getting the guy at the top. And, look, I mean— it was Detective Solis was the Solis. He was the guy that that took me down, and he's a great he's a great detective too. He took down this cocky, arrogant, brash 
dope head named Damon West. And when they put all the people in the Uptown Burglaries in a lineup, I'm sure they looked at it and said, which one of these people does not look like the other, you know? And it's me. So, And I was the leader. I was definitely the leader of the group. And I go to this trial, and the trial was on – the last day of the trial was on May 18, 2009. It was a six-day trial, right? Six days, and that, and, and for burglary, you know, even a rash of burglaries, burglary ring, six six days, that's a long trial in the, in this county. I've been until – I've been in a lot involved in a lot of trials yeah. myself. So – July 30th, 2008, SWAT busts in, rescues you, drags you out. Drags me out. May 18th, 2009, Judge Snipes. Judge Snipes. So, man, and I, and I knew Snipes from back in the day. You're going to see that in the book, The Change Agent. So I used to Already, hang out. I got to that part. I used to hang out on this, and I changed the name, but the guy whose who's boat that I met him was, it was a, is an attorney here in Dallas named George Milner III. You know George Milner? Yes, I do. Yeah, George is a great friend of mine, and, and I've known George for years. And so George introduced me to Colonel Snipes. That's what I knew him as when he was a prosecutor in the Northern District of, of Dallas. He was a federal prosecutor, assistant U.S. attorney. And I would meet people on George's boat all the time, but I met Mike Snipes in the late 90s. Uh, fast forward to 2004 was the last time I saw Mike Snipes outside of a courtroom. We were at Primo's. Uh, I think it was, it was 2004, 2005. His dad had just died and I bought everybody a round of shots. So I bought, actually bought the guy that would eventually be the judge in my case a, a shot in 2004 when his dad died. Um, but then fast forward to 2008 when they're bringing me in, they're arraigning me. They bring me into criminal district court seven and there's judge Snipes, not Colonel Snipes. That's judge Snipes now. And he's the judge in the criminal district court seven where my case is and and um and man judge snipes you know he did his job as a judge and here's the deal that i, I learned like i had a resentment whenever i was before i got into recovery because and this is what i want to talk about too about recovery recovery versus being sober i was sober when i went to my trial because i hadn't had any drugs in my system for 10 months since the swat team got me right that was the last in fact my sobriety birth date is july 30th 2008 literally is my rescue date but um, before I got into a program recovery, I still had a resentment against Snipes because I think he, you know, I, I felt like he didn't, he didn't, you know, he didn't take care of me. I thought this is, you know, God, maybe, maybe I'll get some better treatment, but he did his job. And I learned that when I got into a program recovery and I started to work a personal inventory. And in a personal inventory, you got to work out your resentments in life. You got to figure out why you resent somebody. And so I, I, I understood then that Judge Snipes didn't do anything wrong. It was me that did something wrong. I was a criminal. I violated the social contract. I broke into people's homes. I, I did drugs. I put myself in the criminal district court seven, and I gave the power to a jury of my peers to sentence me to 65 years in prison, which is what they sentenced me to. And that was on me, man. And it took – Joe, I like. I wish I could tell you that the day that I was sentenced to life in prison, I was like, oh, okay, well, that's all my fault. But – People in their addiction, they don't understand that until they work a program recovery. That's why program recovery is so important because you got to work out the baggage in your life and you got to own everything you do. And it, on, on May 18th, 2009, I still hadn't owned everything I did. That wouldn't happen until I got into prison and got into a program recovery. But on May 18th, May 18th, 2009, the jury, they went to deliberate that day for, for 10 minutes on a, on a six-day trial. I mean, so that you know, when they broke to go deliberate, they had their mind made up. Actually, they didn't. They sent a note into Judge Snipes and wanted to know if they could give me life without parole. That was their question. Their only question during deliberation. Can we give him life without parole? 
And Snipes told him, you can't give him life without parole. You can give him life, but not life without parole. And so that's what they did. 65 is a life sentence in Texas. The Texas Department of Criminal Justice, they stopped calculating time on a timesheet at 60 years. 60 is a life sentence. That's a natural lifespan of a human being. So everything above that is just window dressing for juries. I mean, when a jury says 65 or 99 or the word life, it's 60. So a jury, a jury gave me life that day. And, man, it took the wind out of me. It was, it was rock bottom for me. I knew that something had to change and that something was me, but I didn't have any idea how to do it yet at that time, Joe. But, um, yeah, I look back on it now, too. I want to say this, that getting a life sentence was the best thing that ever happened to me. And here's why. When I got to prison, I saw so many guys in there. Most of the guys in prison, they were in prison on the installment plan. Two years here, five years there, 10-year charge there. They're on the streets. They get another charge. They go back. They're doing this the whole life, right? I got sentenced to life the first shot, and they sent me with an indeterminate sentence, Joe. So, I mean, they could keep me there forever if they wanted to. So, really, it put the onus on me to make the change, and that's what I'm grateful now for that life sentence. Speaking of that change, you met a a fellow named Mr. Jackson. Yeah. African African American Muslim, yeah, totally different from you in appearance, social status, just totally different people. Tell us about that story about meeting him. So, right after the trial, the the last visit I have with my parents, they they told me, "Here's the deal: no gangs, no tattoos. You come back as the man we raised, or don't come back at all." And um, my mom tells me this, and. And she's serious. She's like, listen, we gave you all the opportunities in life and you blew this, but you can turn this around. I don't know how you're going to do it, but none of these Aryan Brotherhood gangs, none of that stuff. So I'm in Dallas County Jail. I live in the South Tower at the time. They had just opened up the South Tower. I mean, I'm sure y'all have taken people to the South Tower oh, yeah. many times. So this is 2009 when they just opened the South Tower. And there's another guy that's doing time with me in there. And I call him Mr. Jackson for the sake of the story. The only name I knew this guy by was Muhammad. Muhammad, because when a guy goes to prison and converts to Islam, he gets rid of his real name, takes on a Muslim name. Kind of like that guy did in the 60s named Cassius Clay. Yep. Comes out as Muhammad Ali, right? Yep. So I'm in Dallas County Jail, and I've got two months before the prison bus is going to come pick me up. And I'm asking every guy in there, Joe, how am I going to survive? What am I going to do? And every guy I talk to, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, they're all telling me the same thing. You have to get into a gang. You won't survive without a gang. They said the gang will be your family now. But there was Mr. Jackson, Muhammad. The one guy in there that was so different than everybody else. He was just always smiling, always positive guy. And um, he came up to me every morning. He'd check on me. So one morning he comes up, and he's got a cup of coffee in his hands, a smile on his face. He's like, West, I've been watching, man. I've been watching how you're dealing with these knuckleheads and these dummies. Talk about you got to get into a gang. He's like, don't listen to these fools. You want to keep the promise you made to your mom and your dad? Then let me tell you what prison's going to be like. And so he breaks it down for me. He's like, prison the first thing you need to understand about prison, he said, prison's all about race. Race runs the whole institution because the inmates want it to be about race. It's all, it's all run by the gangs, and the gangs are broken out by race. He said, so you're going to fight the white gangs when you get in there first. After that, it's going to be the black gangs, and then you're going to earn the right to walk alone. He told me the truth about fighting. He said, you're going to get into a lot of fights, but understand this. You don't have to win your fights. You just have to fight your fights. No one cares about wins and losses. Just fight. Don't ever not fight. But then he gave me this analogy. He said, I want you to imagine prison as a pot of boiling water. And he said, anything we put into this pot of boiling water will be changed by the heat and the pressure inside that pot. He said, I'm going to put three things in that pot of boiling water and watch how they change. A carrot, an egg, and a coffee bean. So he walks me through it. The carrot in a pot of boiling water goes in hard but becomes soft. 
an egg in the same pot of boiling water goes in with a soft liquid inside, but that inside becomes hard. Your heart becomes hardened when you become the egg. But a coffee bean in the same pot of boiling water changes the pot of boiling water into a pot of coffee. It was the only thing that changes the water because it's, it's the change agent, right? Right. Has the power inside it to change the world around it. And that's what he's telling me. If you want to come back as someone your parents recognize, you have to be a coffee bean. And, and that's the last words he ever said to me, man. Before the prison bus is pulling up to South Tower to pick me up to go serve my life sentence, he's like, Wes, be a coffee bean. And um, Joe, I remember how it felt inside when I heard the story of the coffee bean for the first time because it was empowering, literally empowering because it put the power back inside me. It let me know I have three choices. Be a carrot, be an egg, be a coffee bean, but the choice is mine. No matter how hard the adversity is in life, I can choose to be a coffee bean, but it's going to be a choice I make. That was empowering. Now, now the power wasn't in the hands of the criminal justice system, the guards, the other inmates. It was in me. And if I could keep the power inside me, I wouldn't just survive prison. I could thrive inside that prison. And this allegory he gave me, one of the best allegories I've ever heard. I mean, one of the best lessons I've ever learned. I tell people all the time that, you know, Sometimes the lessons we learn in life, they don't come from people that look like us. They don't come from the same background as us. I mean, this guy is a black Muslim man in Dallas County Jail. He's from the streets of Dallas. I'm a white, middle-class Christian from a little town called Port Arthur. We could be more different if we tried. But he shared with me one of the most important and transformational messages I've ever received in my entire life. And part of the reason is because I was willing to listen at that point. And when we get to a point where we're ready to listen, we want the knowledge— it's important. But here's the deal, too. I want I wanted to say this about Muhammad. Later on in life, that was the last time I ever saw him, the last words he ever spoke to me. And when I got out of prison, and we'll get to that story of how I got out of prison, I get out in 2015, I want to find this guy because I want to I thank him, first of all, and I want to tell him I became a coffee bean because he told me he thought I would become the egg. One of the last things I asked him in county, I was like, what am I going to find more of in prison? He's like, oh, you're going to find more eggs. He said, and here's why. The egg is a natural evolution of any human being in any difficult situation. He said, you're about to go into one of the most difficult situations on earth. He said, the truth is you'll probably become the egg too. You see any eggs in your profession, guys? Yeah. The egg is a natural evolution of human beings in difficult situations. That's what he's telling me. So fast forward to when I get out in 2015. I go, I, I got I to pay fines. I owe $10,000 to Dallas County, which I paid off. And, like, literally when I call him up and I give him the $10,000, it was Officer Nolan was the lady that answered the phone from DPD. Maybe she works at the sheriff's office. But um, whenever I spoke to her and said I was making that payment, she's like, are you for real? And I'm like, well, yeah, I owe this money. She's like, I've never taken a call like this. I don't even know what to do. It was like somebody calling to for a car extended a warranty and them actually taking you up on it. Yeah. Like, it is, yeah. <laughs> Have you checked your warranty? Yeah. yeah. Um, but, yeah, I had to pay my fines, man, because, I mean, that's, that's part of being in a program recovery. You pay your debts. And so, but, you know, I'm asking, you know, I said I'm trying to find a friend of mine that I was locked up with, and the only thing I have is a Muslim name. And she's like, wow, yeah. we're not going to find him with that. We need his real name or his birthday. So I didn't have his name, and I had to hope that one day he would find me. And, he, and this is how he found me in a roundabout way. Um, about he, fa- a, he found you? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, here's how it happened. So about a year ago, now, listen, at the time of this recording, we're eight years out from when I got out of prison. So seven years out, a year ago, I get a letter from an inmate in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. I get a lot of inmate mail, man. Because I like, I'm, 
in this life now, I'm I'm like Andy Dufresne. Remember Andy Dufresne from Shawshank? We're going to get into that. Yeah, so I'm like Andy Dufresne to every man and woman that's incarcerated in America. So I, I bring him hope because I showed it can be done because my life is one of those stories of hope. But this letter comes to me. It's got no return address. One sentence. Find James Lynn Baker and you find Mr. Jackson. So whoever wrote me knew the guy, had heard the coffee bean, read my stuff. I write for the, the prison has a newspaper. I write in it every month, and I'm always talking about him because I'm thinking, man, maybe he's in there. So maybe I'll reach him through the newspaper article. So, but this guy writes me and he says, "Hey, find James Lynn Baker and you find Mr. Jackson." So, and I call him Mr. Jackson. The story. So that's what he's telling me: find James Lynn Baker, you find Mr. Jackson. So I come to Dallas and, and uh, through George, I get a private investigator, and first thing the private investigator found was James Lynn Baker's criminal record. And it matched everything he told me in Dallas County Jail. In and out of prison his entire life. Had him in county jail in 2009 when I was there. Had him in there for a parole violation, which is what he told me was in there for. So I know this is him. I haven't seen a picture of him or anything yet, but I never got to see my friend again because Mr. Jackson, James Lynn Baker II, he died on May, May 9th, 2017. Died of an opiate overdose. He was a drug addict just like me, but he never got to a program recovery. He never got help for his addiction. And... I would go on to find his family, and his family has a legacy here in Dallas. His, um, his sister, Von Seal Baker, is the very first Dallas Cowboy cheerleader ever. There was a Texas Monthly article about her that I found Von Seal. His mother, Bertha Baker, in 1948, is the first licensed black daycare owner in the city of Dallas. The very first daycare license to a black resident. It goes to his mother, who starts the first licensed black daycare out of the home he grew up in. In fact, the home he grew up in in South Dallas is a city landmark in the city. So I'm just floored. This is my guy. And I call up the three living sisters, Visha, Von Seal, and Vanessa. I call up Visha and Vanessa one night, and I'm in a layover in Atlanta's airport, and, and I was telling them about this story about the time that I met their brother in Dallas County Jail in 2009 and about the message he gave me, what I've been able to do with this message since in prison and when I got out. And I, and I told them, I said, listen, I, I don't know about your brother and the choices that he made in his life. And, and what I'm talking to when I say that to him is like, this is the warning. He had the coffee bean message the whole time. You can have all the knowledge in the world, but if you can't apply that knowledge because of an addiction, because of behaviors and stuff like that, all the knowledge in the world won't save you. But I told him, I don't know what your feelings are about your brother, but I need you to understand he impacted at least one person while he was on this planet, me. And I'm going to impact the entire planet with the message he gave me of the coffee bean. And I asked him, I said, what high school did y'all go to? Because he had told me he was from the inner city. And they confirmed it, Dallas Lincoln. I know where Dallas Lincoln is. That's as, that's as urban as you're going to get. That's South Dallas. I said, great. Here's what I want to do at Dallas Lincoln. Honor your brother. I'm going to start a scholarship. I'm going to put $10,000 every year into a trust for a scholarship in your brother's name. We'll call it the James Lynn Baker II Be a Coffee Bean Scholarship. So that every year, one little boy or one little girl that comes out of his neighborhood, goes to his old high school, they get a better chance at life through an education. Because these two guys met up in Dallas County Jail in the summer of 2009 in South Tower. And I said, I would love for your family to pick the winner of the scholarship every year. And they were on board. They did it. And, and in May, they picked the first scholarship recipient, this little girl named Megan. Megan's mother is a school teacher. Her dad is a disabled veteran. And Megan is enrolled in Texas A&M right now. She's going to be an engineer one day. So I finally found Muhammad. I finally found Mr. Jack. It took seven years to find this guy, man. But the point of me even getting to that was that he had this story of the coffee bean the entire time. And I asked the sisters where he heard it from. And they figured it was probably from their grandmother who talked in parables and stuff like that. But just to know that you can have, it's a big warning. It's a warning to me, to everybody else. You can have all the knowledge, but if you can't apply the knowledge, the knowledge does you no good. That's true, but you you also have to be accepting of the of the knowledge. Yep. And actually, 
work it out in your mind and apply it to your life. And starting this wellness unit up, and you know when it comes to addiction and, and, and mental illness or a combination of both, it's hard for people to come forward and, and um, because of, you know, come forward and say they need help or ask for help. Three hardest words for yep. people to say, yep. I need help. Yep. And in the, in the police world, it's even harder for an officer because we have to put on a mask every day and in, in amongst our own, our peers, it's hard for them to come out and ask for help. So we're in the wellness unit. Kent, Kent's a part of, he's one of our checkpointers. We, we try to establish a culture within the big Dallas police department that it's okay to come forward. We're here to help and normalize it and, and make it not a weakness to ask for help, but a strength. And it's the same thing to, to be a, a change agent and in within like a coffee bean in this department. And it just permeates throughout the whole department because negativity can spread too. we're, we could be very cynical because we see the worst of the worst. We Absolutely. see people at their, at their worst and, you saw that too at being in prison and you took this message and Mr. Jackson, he, he gets out and you said that he didn't follow his own rules. Right. But you were stuck there. You had a life sentence. I didn't and, go to the installment plan. Yes. So yeah. it makes, you know, makes me wonder he got back on that carousel. He gets back out and he ended up how he ended up, but he left you with some th- a semblance of hope. Yeah, something to grasp onto and to put in play, and that, I I love the story about doing that for Lincoln. That is that is that community. Kent and I both worked that area uh, for a very long time, and we know that school and and we know that community, and it's, that that is it's incredible. Well, I mean, I here's the deal. That's that's the part of life that I've I've tried to attach my motivations in life to this word called integrity. You know, integrity is who you are when no one but God's watching you, man. And and I've become. I've become a good person, Joe. I mean, it, prison prison humbled the hell out of me, and it, it knocked it knocked everything out of me, um, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and, and literally, I was transformed. It was like going into a cocoon, you know, going in as a caterpillar, coming out a butterfly. I had a spiritual awakening inside there, and the integrity part of that is that I've got to do the right thing, and, and the right thing is to honor this guy somehow. Because if he, if if I don't run into this guy in Dallas County Jail, we're not having this conversation today. The world doesn't have the coffee bean message. No. So, but I mean, it, you may it, not be alive. Uh, no, I, I don't think I'd be alive. And if I was alive, am I a version of, of me worth living? You know, because the the reality is what he coached me on, what he it, what hit me up with whenever I was in county jail in South Tower about what I was going to face. It, it gave me the blueprint for what I was gonna, about to go into. I didn't go in there blind and I didn't come. I didn't grow up like the rest of the people in prison that I was around, white, black, or Hispanic or anything. Man, I was an anomaly in there. I don't look like everybody. So I don't talk. You know what I looked like? The man. And the man put him there. And now the man was locked up with him, and everybody wanted a shot at the man. I mean, I fought for two months when I got there. It was, if anybody's wondering, hey, this guy had to pay a stiff price for, for what he did, you bet, man. Prison was the hardest thing I've ever been through. And I would, I would literally, I, I, would, I would rather pay a, a $2 million fine than have to go to prison. But I had to go to prison. I deserved to go to prison. And the first two months of prison were rocking and rolling, man. It was fighting nonstop. And it was just like just like Jackson said, the white gangs first, and it was the black gangs. And, you know, after about two months, the violence was finally over, and the threat to my physical safety was gone. But I started working on myself inside that prison. I started – I changed my mindset. And, Joe, this is what's so important. You got to – your mindset is everything, how you think. Your wellness unit, what you're doing is you're changing the culture – 
of the way law enforcement thinks because you're absolutely right, man. How do you be a cop and, and, and see all the, de- the, the death, destruction, the negativity that you see? You, you arrest the same people over and over again. How do you be a positive person and all that? And that's going to take a toll on you, man. I, law enf- I, I speak to law enforcement groups all over America. And anybody's listening to this, reach out to me if you're in law enforcement. I love speaking to law enforcement for a few reasons. One, I want you to see the example of someone that did get it right because I think that your job is so important because I've lived in a world where there's no cops, man. It's called prison. It's a dangerous place to be. You don't want a world where there's no law enforcement, man. You want a law enforcement that's supported by the community. But in your job, you have one of the only jobs, if not the only job, that every interaction you have with a human being starts on negative. You have to work hard to get to where anybody else gets in their normal conversations just to zero. You're, I mean, because people see a badge and a gun, they shut down. Their body language is terrible. Everything's off. But you have a job where you have to work really hard to get back to just zero where normal people get it. You got a hard job, man. I mean, it, you got all these people in the public coming after law enforcement because a few bad apples ruin it for everybody. And just, I just want to be able to pour into law enforcement groups and show them one example, someone that got it right. And, and two, give them the message of the coffee bean. Cause I, I see a lot of eggs in law enforcement, man, because you see so much negativity. You're in that pot of boiling water. Damon, you, you mentioned earlier about, uh, the movie Shawshank Redemption, and I touched on it in the intro as well. It was a very Shawshank-esque intro. And even when you're describing to me about you getting a message saying, find him, you'll find Mr. Jackson. It reminded me you go along this wall yeah. and look down oh, wow. when, there's yeah. a poly- when there's a polished stone that shouldn't be there. <laughs> you know, and that's what that's what it was wow, that's what it was yeah, reminding man. me of. That's that gave me chills, man. Yeah. Then when you were talking about it, I almost I didn't want to I didn't want to cut you off, but I was thinking I was going when you got that letter and it really reminded me of that uh when Red the, Red was reading that letter trying to find that stone. Yes, at the base of the wall. Yeah. And he had the little tin box in there with the with with the map and yeah, and, and the, money, the money. Yep. I want to get your perspective on that movie. And there's there's a lot of meanings and uh, hidden meanings in that. Um, can you talk about that? So Shawshank Redemption. My dad, um, the second night that I was home from prison, I live in my parents' house, right? And so uh, I live in my parents. My dad he tells me he said, "Hey, Damon, I recorded every prison movie that ever came on TV while you were locked up." He said, well, "You watch them all with me. Let me know who got it right." So we we started out the first night watching prison movie. We watched we watched uh, Cool Hand Luke. His favorite prison movie. And um Eating all them eggs, man. That eating all them eggs. Yeah. Oh my God. What we got here. Yeah. <laughs> so we watched all of them. And when we got to the end of them, you know, he was like, What do you think? I said, It's Shawshank. Shawshank is the one that got it right. And I mean, here, I mean here's why I say Shawshank was the one that got it right. And I and I truly believe that every whoever consulted on Shawshank had done some time before the movie. Because what they got right about prison is that prison is a hopeless place. And, and, and in a hopeless place, something's going to fill that void, that existential vacuum where hope once was. And that's usually going to be something dark, negative, and evil that fills that place. But every man has to try to fill that void of hope in his own way. And everybody did it in a different way in Shawshank. You know, Red was the guy that could get things. You know, everybody had their own little role in there. But in comes this guy named Andy Dufresne. And Andy Dufresne is is different, you know, and I could relate to Andy because I was very different when I was in prison. I was didn't look like anybody, so I didn't talk like anybody else. Andy was a banker, I think, and I was a, a stockbroker, you know. So, but 
Jackson told me in county jail, he said, you have a light about you that people are going to want to extinguish because prison's a very dark place. And when I saw Shawshank with my dad again, it reminded me of that conversation because prison is dark. And Shawshank, to me, it's a movie about Red. I don't think it's really Andy's movie. I think it's Red's movie. And I'll tell you why I think it's Red's movie and not Andy's movie. Because when you meet Red, Red is a dead man because Red's lost hope. And if you have hope, if you have no hope, you have nothing. You're dead on the inside. All those guys in Shawshank were dead men walking. Brooks. Remember Brooks? He makes parole. Institutionalized. Yeah, yeah, he lasts about two weeks after he makes parole, and he hangs himself. But he wrote a letter back to the boys in Shawshank, told him what he did and why he did it. And as Andy's reading a letter out to the boys in Shawshank, they're all nodding their head because those guys in Shawshank all have the same mindset as Brooks. Hopelessness, right? Red even says to Andy, I wouldn't make it out there either, Andy. I'm an institutional man now. Red says the words to Andy out loud. He said, hope is a dangerous thing. Now, you in your wellness unit run into men and women in your department that have that same mindset where they think hope is a dangerous thing because they've bought into this seemingly hopeless world and it's dark in there. But Andy, Andy told Red, he said, get busy living or get busy dying. And by the end of that movie, when Red's reading that letter along that rock wall, he said those words out loud. He said, uh, "He said hope is a good thing. And that's the message I took from Shawshank is it's hope. It's very, it's very spiritual, the movie. It, it's, it's got religious implications to it, too. Who do you think the movie's about, though? I think the movie's about Red. The movie is narrated from Red's perspective yeah. of him looking at Andy coming in. I think, I, think the rede- I think the Shawshank Redemption was actually about the redemption of Red. Because yeah. he had lost hope. Yeah. He was he was in there for murder, and he actually was the uh, the guiltiest man in Shawshank. Yeah. He called himself. Somebody like Andy came into his life and actually gave him hope. And when Andy made his escape and he reached out to Red, he had his friend. He lost his friend, but then get busy living or get busy dying. He reached out, and he found his friend. And that gave him hope to move on with his life. And I, I think, I think the redemption is actually red. Yeah. That's, that's what, that's what I think. And then if you go back and watch the movie and I really want to watch it again, it's been, it's been uh, a minute since I've seen it. That's one of my favorite movies. But if you watch it closely, you listen to red's words and from his perspectives, it's, he's the one narrating the story. Yeah. And it's all about, even all the way up to the end, when he's walking up to that beach and he sees his friend standing in that boat. Yeah. That's 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 hit the end of his journey, I believe. Yeah, no, I agree, man. It's um it, I get emotional talking about Shawshank because um you know, when I went through prison, when I first saw Shawshank back in the 90s when I was a this punk arrogant cocky college football player, the only thing I could take from the movie is that that's a cool movie about this guy named Andy Dufresne who escapes from prison. But it took me going through my own adversity in life, going through my own prison, to understand what you just said. That this is it's Red's movie, it's not Andy's movie, because Red's telling you the story about this guy named Andy Dufresne that saved his life. And what's the value of saving a human life? Um, Goes back to the coffee bean. Yeah, You, you know, look what Mr. Jackson did by planting a seed in you to give you hope and give you a, a template to survive. And what you said, I've shared with a few other people, you talk about the redemption of Red, because that's what it is. Red's been redeemed. 
what I learned, and this happened last year when I found Mr. I found James Lynn Baker, the real Mr. Jackson, right? What I found out from this is that part of the reason why he gave, and this is going to get really philosophical and deep here, and it, but it's what I think. Part of the reason why he transfers this message to me in South Tower, Dallas County Jail in 2009 is one, it's a God thing. I, God is meeting me there, and God can come in any different form. He can send any messenger to you. And that's the thing. You've got to be receptive to all of God's messengers to get all of his messages. So if you're if you're turning yourself off to people because of their race, their gender, ethnicity, and all that, you can miss messages really coming from God. But I was a receptive person to this messenger, and he gives me this message of the coffee bean. And I think part of the reason was obviously we see for me to transform myself, turn it around, because I've gone out to try to spread this and, and, and help people become a better version of themselves. But whenever I found him and I found out about his background, I realized that one of the reasons why he met me there in Dallas County Jail to give me that message was that someday that I could come back and redeem him because he needs to be a redeemed man too. Why can't he be a redeemed man? I'm a redeemed man by every measure and metric you can go. But I had to redeem him. And I found out this is how the redemption of, of of, of James Lane Baker happened. His sisters, um, Kevin Reese, the guy from WFA, really good storyteller for WFA. He's a news, newscaster. He wanted to do a story. He, he loves my story because he said, your story, Damon's like an onion. There's so many layers to it. And he, and he covered the story with with SWAT when I came and spoke to, uh, speak to SWAT a few weeks ago. But he said, uh, he said, I want to do a story for you about you finding Mr. Jackson, you giving away the scholarship to the kids and all that. But I'd like to get the sisters in there interviewing them. And at first, the sisters aren't responsive to it. And finally, I just call one of them up. I'm like, hey, what's going on? And this is her response. She said, you tell us that there's going to be a positive story about our brother, but there's nothing positive to say about our brother. He was a loser. You know, he was he was a degenerate. He did, you know, he just, they had nothing but negative things to say. He would get out of prison. And he would come back to stay at one of their houses. And you know how addicts do. We burn it to the ground and then go back to prison and come stay with another relative and burn that to the ground. That's what his whole life was. Prison, drugs, prison, drugs. She's like, you say it's going to be a positive story, but there's nothing positive to say. I was like, trust me, this is going to be a positive story. We're going to change the image. And if you ever go back and watch, you, you if you go into YouTube and put WFAA, and Damon West, you'll see a story about Damon West finds the the guy who gave him the story of the coffee bean. It's a news story he did, and those sisters are interviewed that are in that story. And man, Joe, their backs are straight up. There's so much pride when they're talking about their brother, because their brother was the guy that gave Damon West the coffee bean. And look what Damon's doing now. But it's because my brother met him in Dallas County. They get so much pride in their brother, man. What is the cost of restoring? the image, the memory of a human being in a family's life. And that's what I got to do. I got to redeem him on the way out the door with this coffee bean message. So it's like wheels within wheels within wheels. When you talked about the redemption of Red, man, it reminded me of the fact that he got redeemed too. Jackson got redeemed. It's wild. Absolutely. I want to talk about your projects now. Okay. And what you got going. I know you're going to continue to spread the, uh, the coffee bean message, and I love that. Uh, can you tell us about what you got got in the hopper? Yeah, so I got a lot of stuff going on. So I, so I get it just for everybody's sake. I got out of prison on November sixteenth, two thousand fifteen. I make my first parole in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, and a lot of people are wondering how does a guy that gets sentenced to sixty five years walk out in seven years and three months? Here's how that works. 
In Texas, they have two different kinds of crimes. They have uh, aggravated defenses and non-aggravated defenses. Aggravated, think violent crimes, think crimes where there's a physical victim in that crime. Even a robbery is a is a, an aggravated crime because sticking a gun in someone's face, there's a physical victim. But then the other crimes, the non-aggravated crimes, are like property crimes, drug crimes, stuff like that. My crimes, because no one was ever home, so thankfully no one's ever home for a lot of reasons, but my crimes were non-aggravated. That means I had access to good time and work time credit when I was in prison, things that aggravated guys don't get access to. And it also means I don't have to do as much of my time because the prison systems let out nonviolent offenders faster than they do the violent ones. You know, there's a threat to public safety thing that they're, the threshold isn't met with a nonviolent guy. So I made my first parole. The parole board comes to visit me, and the lady from parole has my whole jacket. She's got everything. She's, and she's, she's like, you know, she said, if you could be remembered for being anything in life, anything at all, she said, tell me what that would be in just one word go and I'm like useful I just want to be useful and I can be useful inside this prison as you've already seen or I can be useful in the free world finding more coffee beans November 16 2015 I walk out of prison now I'm not a free man I'm not a free man at all I'm on parole in the state of Texas till 2073 I got 50 more years left on supervised release brother and I mean I'm I started it was 58 so I'm chipping away at this thing man and I mean every month I check in my PO just like any other parolee in Texas but I have not let being on parole hold me back in life because I've refused to be a victim of any kind. I did this to myself. I deserve to go to prison. That's my time. I'm going to go do my time. But I'm not going to let my time hold me And I'm not going to get out of prison, put my head down in shame, and go out there because I know that there's power in a redemption story. But you have to live that out every single day. So in my life, I've tried to go out and share this message as much as possible. And it started out locally when I lived, where I lived in Southeast Texas, and it started spreading all over the country, then all over the world. Then there were books. There was the the change agent came out first, and this book called The Coffee Bean. The Coffee Bean became a bestseller here in America for like five weeks, and it gets a global publishing deal. It's in every language in the world now, Joe. I mean, Chinese, Spanish, Arabic, French, Italian. But with my platform comes a responsibility because I've been given this amazing second chance of life. There's only a handful of people that have a story like mine after going through something like that. But it requires me to constantly give back. I have a prayer that I pray every morning, and this is what what guides my life. I, I learned this prayer when I got into AA in prison, and I've been saying this since 2011. I ask God for two things in the morning. I say, hey, God, put in front of me what you need me to do today for you, and let me recognize that when I see it, because I don't want to miss whatever that is. Amen. That's it. And that's that's it. That's the only thing I pray for, because now that makes me useful, and it makes me a servant leader. I'm out trying to find ways to serve. So one of the things I did is I started a foundation called the Be a Coffee Bean Foundation. And what we do at the foundation is we're looking for children all over America who have an incarcerated parent. Because when I was in prison and I saw these guys in prison that have kids on the outside, same story every time, man. My, my son or my daughter, uh, they want to do this. They want to play this sport or do that, whatever this other thing, but we can't afford it because I'm in prison. Or, or more likely was my son and my daughter, they're going down this road because I went down this road, generational incarceration. We see it all the time. I got a master's in criminal justice. I can tell you all about generation. It's a real thing. So when I was in prison, I'm like, man, if, if I can do anything to affect that, that's what I'm going to do. So my foundation, the Be a Coffee Bean Foundation, we find children all over America that have an incarcerated parent. We get with the parent on the outside, or the guardian on the outside, and we will provide up to $2,500 a year for any kid that qualifies to do any extracurricular activity they want. A little boy wants to take soccer lessons, a little girl wants to take dance, you know, select sport. That stuff's expensive. But we want to make sure those kids who have an incarcerated parent have access to extracurricular activities. And another thing 
that I'm trying to do in my foundation is I'm trying to find a way to to because I I do believe that there's more Damon West inside the prison system. I, I do believe that um, there's more. There are there are. I met other guys that were good guys in there, but they'll need help to become the best version of themselves. So I'm trying to find a way to to work within the prison system to try to find men that have the right kind of felony to still be a teacher because every state allows certain felons to be teachers. I could be a teacher in any state in America because I don't have violent crimes. And I'm trying to find guys like that with a servant heart. And if, if I can find a state that will let me do it, I believe this is what I'm betting. Give me a pilot program. I've got the money for it already. Let me go into the prison system, find five men that fit that description, right felony to be a teacher. We're not changing laws or servant's heart. And I'll educate them for the last four years they're in prison to get them an elementary education bachelor's degree from a university in that state. Um, when they get out, I'll meet them at the gate, use car, wardrobe to teach in. I'll have a house for them for the first two years to live in. And the first two years, student teacher salary, my foundation will pay for that. They go Now these guys go teach in the most underperforming at-risk elementary schools where the crime rates are the highest. Stick them in the schools in the inner cities where no one wants to be. Get them in elementary school. Who better to pull a kid in the hall, pull a kid aside in one of those hallways and say, hey, son, let me tell you about the choices you're making in life. Let me tell you my story. I believe that there is a future of teachers that are inside of our prison system right now, and we're going to tap into that at some point because the teacher shortage is getting so bad. So that's one of the things I'm trying to do. I'm trying to find a state to let me do that. Um, I've got a curriculum that is in the Texas prison system. It's at the wind unit. It's being piloted right now. The parole board, some of the people reached out to me in 2020 during COVID. Everything's locked down. Damon, you're like, and this is what they tell me. You're the, the, you're the example that rehabilitation works. I'm the most visible parolee in Texas. Can you create a curriculum that can teach men and women in prison how to think like you do? Because if we do that, that's a public safety thing we're reaching out to now because we're changing the way a person thinks. And if you change the way they think, you can change their family tree, change the way they behave. So I did. I created a curriculum with a friend, with a team of mine. For it's called Be the Change Prison Curriculum. And every four months in the in the win unit, we graduate a class of thirty men that um, take this twenty lesson course. And I mean, the letters I get from these guys. I mean, they're 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 like, man, you've changed the way I think. I, I'm telling my son on visitation now about different things, and it's really getting through on that level of changing the way these inmates think, and that's the main thing. But you know, I. I try to spend a lot of my time that's free, which I don't have much of, because I'm on the road probably 24 or 25 days a month speaking all over the country. I've got an incredible life. I tell my wife every day, I can't believe this is my life. I get to go out and impact the entire world with this message. But I try to spend a lot of my time inside correctional facilities and around law enforcement groups. I want to be, you know, I've got my foot in both worlds. And like we were talking about this before we got on the air, I'm not going to go into a room with a, with a bunch of law enforcement officers and have 100% of the people going, oh, this is great. I love hearing from this guy, you know. There's going to be some people that, that aren't receptive to a guy like me being the messenger, and that's okay, man. That's okay because I'm just trying to, to be that example that someone got it right because I know there's guys that were in that men and women in that SWAT room when I talked to them a couple weeks ago that came out of there saying, man, good. Somebody got it, man, and that makes me feel good. It makes you feel like your job's important. In fact, when I, I told SWAT when I came in, and they, they've they just got to reach out to me and tell me where to send the money. I said, look, man, I did this for for the you know for Mr. Jackson. I, I, I want to give you all, I, I give you $10,000 for your SWAT fund. Go buy equipment with it. Go get bulletproof vests. I mean, imagine if you, imagine if, you know, the equipment that you get helped save someone's life one day, and it came from the guy you took down 15 years ago, you know? So, yeah, I mean, 
I just try to put back everywhere I can now, Joe, because, I mean, I think that it's required. And not to get too religious, man, but the day I'm walking out of prison, man, the sergeant walks us out. There's four of us leaving that day. Walks us to the gate, and he says, hey, here's your last order. When that Sally Port gate opens, get on the other side of this gate and get off our property. Don't come back to TDCJ again. I'm like, yes, sir, no problem, right? So I'm running out the gate. My parents are in the parking lot, and I stop because I hear a voice says, turn around. So I turn back around. I'm looking at the barbed wire. I'm looking at the fence. And it's God talking to me, Joe. And God's telling me, hey, Damon, I want you to get a good look at this place because you're going to work for me now. And as long as you work for me, you're going to have the most amazing life there ever, that has ever lived. He said, you're going to have an incredible life. But the minute it becomes about you, the minute it becomes the Damon show, you're coming back here. Let's go to work. And I start, I took off running for my parents. My parents even asked me, why'd you stop? So I told my mom, my mom's a very spiritual person. I told her what happened. She's like, yeah, that's God talking to you. I'm afraid to not do the right thing and not do the things that are put in front of me every day. And for me, that means, you know, I'm a very visible person. That means people reach out to me all the time. Hey, will you talk to my son or my daughter? They're addicted to something. I'm, I drop what I'm doing and talk to them because that's one of the reasons I think God got me out of that place is to be a messenger of hope, to be Andy Dufresne for other people. Damon, I think that's a perfect way to wrap it up. I want you to tell our listeners, our officers that are out there that are that are out there right now making arrests and putting violent criminals in prison, what could you tell them how they could they could be a coffee bean? Here's what I'll tell you is that life's a pot of boiling water. Your pot of boiling water is unique. It's the biggest pot of boiling water there is outside of living inside of a prison. I can't imagine what it's like to be a law enforcement officer in America right now. You've got the streets are against you at times. You've got the public that's against you at times. Um, but what you have to do is your job is so important because you keep the public safe. It's safe. In public safety, it's paramount. If we lose that, we lose our society. This is like the last barrier to civilize a civilized world. And, and here's the deal. If the brakes come off of society, if we lose law enforcement, the world looks like a prison. And there's a lot of ways to be locked up. And for those law enforcement officers that might be in a prison of their own mind, let me tell you how you free yourself from that. All right. When you go out there and you make these arrests and you take these people in, sometimes you're going to get some of the same people off the street over and over again. You're going to deal with a lot of negative stuff. But in there somewhere is another Damon West. I know there is, man. I know there is. I don't know who it's going to be. I don't know where they're going to be. And you may not even hear from them ever again. When I talked to SWAT a couple weeks ago, they're like, man, we don't even know what happens to the people after we bag them and send them to jail. We didn't know you got 65 years in prison. We didn't know you got out and you're doing all these amazing things. But the fact that you came back and said thank you, I'm telling your, the officers listening to this. When I go into prison, I encourage all those other inmates that are in there to go back and find law enforcement and tell them you want to be part of the solution. So you've got a friend in me. You've got someone that's going in the prison system and encouraging people that are going to be coming out of prison because 95% of the people in prison get out. That's a big number. Three, three million people locked up in America, 95% are getting out. They're going to be pumping gas next to you. They're going to be in the line at Walmart next to your family. But I'm encouraging them. And it, part of my curriculum, too, is to go back and find law enforcement, find ways that you can help serve in the community and tell them thank you for taking me down that day. So hopefully there's going to be some men and women that come up and tell you thank you, like I did with SWAT, because I wanted them to know that I was so grateful for them for saving my life. And you're saving lives out there. I'm speaking to every law enforcement officer, listen, you are saving some of these people's lives. They may not show appreciation. I mean, 
I wasn't appreciative when I got arrested that day, but I look back at it now, and that's why team saved my life. So keep saving lives. Hey, brother, hey, sister, I'll never give up on you. Hey, Mrs., hey, mister, I'll see this all the way through. Sun and the moon, I'll never give up on you. Down when you're lonely, I'll pull you up. Life leaves you heavy when the going gets tough. I'll be your shoulder, together we'll run up from the bottom. Hey brother, hey sister, I'll never give up on you Hey missus, hey mister, I'll see this all the way I'll never give up on you.